Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 275 of the Real Estate Rundown. You're going to want to tune into this show, guys, because I've got a great privilege of talking with a fellow pilot friend of mine, Jacob Vanderslice. We're going to talk about what it means to be in professional-grade assets, what asset classes are fantastic, like, uh, I don't know, maybe mini storage, maybe some commercial, some residential, or some multifamily. What are you doing? How are you doing it? How are you funding it? What are the options available to you? How can you be involved in professional-grade stuff with amateur-grade time? Come back to episode 275 of the Real Estate Rundown right here. Hey guys, welcome to episode 275 of the Real Estate Rundown. It's hard to believe it's been that long, but I've got the great pleasure of having a fellow pilot friend of mine on the show, Jacob Vanderslice. Jacob, how are you, man? Doing great, Shan. Thanks for having us on today. We appreciate it. This episode for you and I, unfortunately, is going to be about real estate. My second greatest pastime, right? Other than pilots, which we both are. We're talking about the prop in the background, flying. The listeners will have to appreciate that you and I are diverting from what we really wanted to be talking about, to be talking about our second favorite thing, which is real estate. So Jacob, tell us a little bit about your journey into real estate, what you focus on, where your markets are, kind of how you got from the high school graduate to where you're at, where you're sitting today. Yeah, we, we've been investing in real estate full-time for about 15 years. And we started off doing single family fix and flips many years ago. And we scaled that business up quite a bit. We've done well over a thousand of them over our careers not doing many lately. Deal flow is tough and it's really not a line of business we've been focused on, but it was really good to us for many years. And we got into commercial real estate back in 13 and 14. We started doing a lot of adaptive reuse retail around Denver, which is basically converting old warehouses, 100-year-old warehouses in some cases, into multi-tenant experience-based retail concepts like breweries and restaurants, coffee shops, yoga studios, stuff like that. Held on to some and sold off others. That's been a good line of business for us. And then we got into self-storage in about 2015. And we like the asset class because it's been historically recession resistant. It performed well during the financial crisis and it performed really well during the pandemic and still is. And we started off by doing ground up construction projects around Denver with a programmatic JV with some high net worth folks. And we expanded out in the Midwest. And those were leading up to 2019. Those were all single asset syndications, but with a common capital base. Then we launched our first storage fund in 19 and we closed that out in 20. We're on our most recent fund right now, and uh, we've got about $170 million worth of self-storage across 30-plus facilities, mainly focused in the Midwest and Southeast, and it's been a good line of business for us. I really want to dive into the yoga studio brewery part. I mean, was that a, I mean, that would have been a great combined experience, right? Because you could have gone, you'd have been a little tight, you had a couple of beers. Now, you, all of a sudden, you get into a little bit. What? No, let's get back to real estate. All right, fine. <laughs> no, that's not real estate. No, those, those have been... <laughs> People ask, you know, what are some of the more fun projects you've done? 
And there's one specific one in downtown Denver. It's an 18,000 foot, very historic looking brick bomb shelter. And the seller used it to store a collection of Porsches. He was one of the more prolific Porsche collector, collectors in the, in the country, if not the world. And he sold his last car off and put the building on the market. And this thing, he bought in 1976 for, I think, $20,000. Right. Uh, and we're in the deal for like $5 million. We, we bought it. We demised it. Made it look really cool. We kind of preserved the historic aspect of it. Got a brewery in there, an escape room, and a restaurant. And that's been one of the more fun projects we've touched. Self-storage yeah. is great too, but... It doesn't tell as good of a story as, as no. And people look at, you know, self-storage as kind of, I think it kind of started out as the guy that had some extra farm ground, right. In the late 1990s, I remember building my first storage facility in four and it was kind of evolving out of that pole barn mentality where you park your motor home and it's definitely gone through its evolutions over time. And, you know, we've continued to build storage as, as we have needs with our, clientele that want us to be a more higher builder. But one of the things that the people like about it that maybe they don't like about it is that it's kind of boring. I mean, it's just, it's a very simple asset class that has high yield on fairly low maintenance. I mean, there's not a whole lot goes on. The eviction process is pretty simple. I've talked to us a little bit about the actual operations of the self-storage and why it's such an attractive asset class from that point of view. We'll bring investors into the conference room who are in our retail deals and in our storage deals. And they want to talk about how the brewery is doing. They don't care how the storage units are doing. I mean, they do to a degree, but they're not as excited about it. It's a good business. I mean, every deal is pretty similar. You've got different deal types. You've got single-story drive-up, non-climate controlled units. You've got single-story climate controlled. You've got more institutional grade, multi-story elevator access, climate control buildings. And they all operate a little bit differently depending on the market. But by and large, you were just leasing metal boxes to people to keep their stuff in. And as you know, being in the business, it's amazing. People will pay more rent than their stuff is worth because it's out of sight, out of mind. It's their credit card every month. By the time they pay rent in there for a couple of years, in many cases, sometimes longer, they could have bought new stuff multiple times over, but they don't want to think about it. They don't want to deal with it. So in general, we like the business because... First of all, we like the dynamic aspect of the revenue streams. You can respond real time to supply and demand changes, both within your facility and at the submarket level. So for example, if a 10 by 10 is really full, you can raise rates on that with a 30-day notice because all the leases are month to month. And likely you won't get a lot of customers who will move out because your rates might already be below market. And let's say you have a five by five unit type that's not well occupied. You can drop rates there well below market, get to critical mass occupancy and start raising rates over time. So we like the dynamic aspect of being able to kind of pull these revenue management levers to maximize our revenue streams and in turn our net operating income. Second reason we like it too is the granularity of the revenue stream. So we're, we're relying on thousands of people to pay us 50 to 300 bucks a month. And the chances that a big chunk of them are going to roll over at the same time are very low. And whereas, for example, the brewery we have in the really cool building I was talking about, they're doing great. They got through the pandemic well. Their base rent in CAM is about $18,000 a month. And they're going to pay it or they're not. Thankfully, they are and they're doing great. But if they don't pay, it's going to be a long time to get them out. And it's going to cost probably $200,000 to find a new tenant. We're still dealing with the effects of the pandemic, of course, and retail has changed quite a bit. So it might take you a while. Yeah. Uh, the chances that $18,000 of your self storage rent roll 
is going to roll over on any given day is very low. And if it did for some reason, you could probably get that release fairly quickly. So <laughs> dynamic revenue and small little bite-sized income streams are why we like it. My brother had a very similar situation. He, he stored his stuff two and a half years later. He pulls out all this really nice furniture, right? Because he's decided, well, I'm, I am actually going to stay gone and sells it at the garage sale. And he literally, because my brother's a numbers guy, he literally pulled it out and he was 40 bucks short of paying for the storage, right? <laughs> I mean, he couldn't even reimburse himself for the storage costs, right? But you're right. I mean, a lot of people are going to look at that. They're going to go, I'm not going to spend, it just went up $9, I'm not going to spend two hours to drive to the storage, get it out of that storage, take it to another storage that's $9 less. Yep. I'm just going to leave it there. Yep. And it's one of those things that, like you said, it's a Chef Tony thing. It's a set it and forget it. It comes out on your credit card and you just keep going there. Let's talk about your investor base. Let's talk about your the people that you use in your fund and your syndications and the different investment vehicles. Tell me about who they are. I mean, are they all ultra high net worth individuals? Who are they? Really, the only common theme between all of them is they're all accredited, which means they're either worth a million dollars outside their primary residence, or they make they make two hundred grand a year if they're single, or three hundred grand a year if they're married. One or the other means you're accredited. It doesn't have to be both. Beyond that, they're all over the country, all different walks of life, all different levels of net worth. Some of them are small business owners. Some of them are worth a hundred million dollars. We have investors with 50K with us, and we have investors with uh, 5 million plus with us. So it's all across the board. A lot of professionals who might be attorneys or doctors, or they run a small business, they want to get into real estate investing, but they don't have time to go out and do their own deals. So they look to us to deploy their capital with. But yeah, all walks of life and our partners are just amazing people. You know, and that's one of the things that I've experienced as I've gotten into, I'm 27 years in the industry of construction and development, but I'm just getting into the syndication portion of it because I honestly, I got to the place where we were doing developments were bigger than single check writer people that I JV'd with in the past could handle. And that's the one thing that I see is everybody has a different reason for why they're doing it, but they all have a common reason as to why they're doing it. The common reason usually is, is that they know, like, and trust you. They value what you bring to the table and they also value their own free time or their own income stream. And they realize that they can't do both, right? So they're able to come to you and say, hey, Jacob, why don't you give me that professional grade experience while I go make my XYZ over here, my professional grade money over here or run my business or the $100 million guy jet around on his yacht, whatever. You know, we all accuse the rich guy of doing that. And fact, he's probably the one working the hardest, but but we've got, everybody's got a different reason for doing it and they're all different. But when they come to you, they come to you for that one reason, right? Because they understand that you guys have a superior business model to what they could come up with on their own. They realize that you guys have contacts and contracts and things in place that they could never get because you're running at a level right here with the business where they would be getting in at a level much lower than that and having to feel their way up learn some of the mistakes, bumps, and bruises that you've gone through along the way. And people just understand that being a part of a syndication and or a fund is actually hugely advantageous to them. It also opens them up to do things that they couldn't do with their IRAs and other things like that, other investment vehicles, because they can invest in things that they want to own and manage or want to own and be a part of without having to manage because with an IRA, you can't, right? Yeah, yeah. So, well, well, well said. What, what you said a moment ago was especially profound. And that's the phrase, no like and trust. People invest with sponsors. It doesn't matter how good your deal is or how good your program is if they don't know, like, or trust you. That's really important. I think people invest in syndications and funds 
with sponsors that they just have that for. They know them, they like them, and they trust them. Their strategy is important, but as a passive investor, you're really investing with the people first, then to a degree, secondarily, the strategy that people are doing. And when people vet you, when people come in and they say, hey, you know what, Jacob, and and you probably at the level that you guys are at probably don't get this as frequently as you used to. But I know when you were starting out, people would come to you and go, Jacob, tell me a little bit more about how you're underwriting this or how you're doing this. But really what they were doing was they were quizzing you about, did you know what you were doing? Right. Yes. And when you're done with that, you've created the trust and the belief that, you know what, Jacob actually has read this spreadsheet. He's not (laughs) just some really good looking guy that has put this together, that's trying to hawk this. And there's some, some other guys in the back and there's some people pulling levers and he actually understands what he's selling. He actually understands what he's doing. And from there, they can create that belief that their money is safe with Jacob. One of the things I often like to say, especially during an initial contact with an investor is first of all, the spreadsheet will tell you whatever you want it to, right? If numbers don't look good, just make them different. And that's it. You just have to believe what you're putting into the spreadsheet. And secondly, after you believe what you're putting in the spreadsheet, no matter what, your spreadsheet is wrong. Things are not going to go like the model suggests they will. They're either going to go better than you expect, or they're going to go worse. But either way, the model is wrong. So, I mean, we're forecasting out income streams five, 10 years down the road. We're forecasting out cap rates five, 10 years down the road. We can make an educated assumption and a conservative assumption of what those look like. But no matter what, it's wrong. And that's one of the reasons why I like being involved in ground-up development, because you've got an appraiser involved that tells you what the actual product is worth, new product versus new product. You're, you know, And a lot of times in a value add, you're not really getting an appraisal that you're including in your underwriting, right? You're not really dealing with ground-up costs that kind of give you that double check because you're right, you can make it say anything. And Jacob, just real quick, I just want to clarify for my listeners, did you exit a deal last year? Did we exit a deal last year? Yes. Not a storage deal, but yes, we've exited a number of deals last year. And in that, that deal was how many years old when you exited? The specific one I can think of was Hounome Development Project that we did on the side. So it was not old at all. It was, I mean, we broke ground on probably January of 20 and sold it uh, between November to January of 21. Okay. And you underwrote that with a pandemic in there, right? (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Yes, yeah. we did. We knew COVID yeah. was coming when we uh, broke around in January See? and we, we lowered our revenue and increased our expense assumptions. And yeah, got to be conservative. Guys, this is why you use Jacob. He can predict pandemics. <laughs> what right. I want to know exactly. is why you didn't tell the rest of us, right? Yeah. But I mean, seriously, if you think about that, you pulled the pin two months before a pandemic started, right? Yeah. And as you know, being a developer all these years, if you buy raw land, and the lights go out, you've got a big problem, right? Raw, raw land, the carry costs, the, and let's say you buy raw land and maybe you're, you've completed 20% of your construction and lights go out, that's even a worse situation. Yeah. So we were definitely concerned. We were remaining rational and optimistic, but nobody knew what the world was going to do in March, April. It was scary. And even we didn't really have a semblance for many months thereafter. And to a degree, we still don't. But the reality is with the right underwriting, the stuff that's not, you know, you probably weren't making the assumption that you're exiting at a four cap. And I know this was a townhome development, but you probably weren't estimating that you were going to see inventory levels drop to the level that they did. And so all of those things probably helped you a little bit, but your underwriting had to be conservative enough that, like you said, if you were wrong, it wasn't devastating. If you were right, we exited one three months ago and our investors were into the thirties on the return and they were 
blown away, surprised and wonder at how intelligent I was. And I had absolutely zero to do with it. Right. I mean, the market <laughs> yeah. was what carried me there, but it was conservative underwriting that really made me look like I knew what I was doing. Right? Yeah. Sometimes you look like heroes and all that happened is we got lucky and all the boats floated on the rising tide. Yeah. Hey, I'd rather be lucky than good any day, Jacob. You I say that. that constantly. Agree. Agree. So, so here we are. We're two little guys. I mean, we're not little guys. I mean, you've got, you know, $190 million, $195 million under management. I mean, I'm, I'm half that size. But how do you compete with the REITs? How do you compete with the guys that come in and go, hey, listen, no problem. Don't worry about Jacob. I can write a check that's bigger than that. I can do this. I can do that. I'm Blackstone. How do you compete with those guys? So we've deployed about $45 million this year into the self-storage space. And deal flow is becoming increasingly difficult. So I would say three quarters of those deals were sourced off market. And that's a term that I use with some hesitation because sometimes off market isn't really off market. These were truly off market though. We had a brokerage relationship with a prolific self-storage broker. He brought us these deals before they hit and he knows we're going to perform. So we're able to get those that way. The other deals we bought that were widely marketed were marketed, but poorly marketed kind of unprofessional brokers, their financials aren't very accurate. On the competition side, though, outside the deals we bought so far this year, if it's a well-marketed class A facility, we can't come close to the strike price. I mean, we're off by millions of dollars. And part of our challenge, so within our fund structure, we try to blend current distributable cash flow with capital appreciation. And we like about half of our return to come along the way from quarterly distributions and the balance of that's on either a refinance or a sale event. So we're looking for income and we're looking for growth. There's a lot of operators out there who are just good with income. They'll buy it, they'll clip a dividend yield and probably sell it for a break even when the time's appropriate. Hopefully they make money. And other operators are really relying on no cash flow along the way, but a bigger pop at the end. And so we're trying to blend, kind of blend both together. So our acquisition criteria is pretty narrow. It's been tough finding deals. We're still finding them. We're closing on 30 million worth of, worth of deals in September, which is next month. We'll see how deal flow remains for the rest of the year and 2022. So let's break that down. Let me kind of put some numbers to this. So if you're looking at a deal that you want to get half of your money from cash flow, you're let's just say that you're looking at a you know a deal we could have got all day long in 19. You would have been looking at an eight and a half percent cash on cash. You'd have been looking at about a 19% IRR, right? I see a lot of stuff that's coming out now that's a 10% pref, no upside, right? That's the deal, the, se- the second deal you're talking about. I also see ones that are 4% cash on cash with a 12 or 14 or 16% IRR. Why do you see those as dangerous? I want to diverge just for a moment into IRR. So I, I assume most of your listeners know what IRR is. It stands for internal rate of return. And IRR is a time-weighted metric based on a series of cash flows. And IRR is the universal way that operators will describe the return profile of a real estate deal. But if you're looking at a real estate deal only through the lens of IRR, it can be massaged in ways to make it look better than it actually is. And basically, in short, if you give me some money today and I give you your money back, plus a little bit of profit, and I do it very quickly your IRR is going to be very high. And if that's the only metric that you're using to evaluate the performance of potential investment, you're going to say, I gave this guy hundred grand. He gave me back 105,000 very quickly. My IRR is 200%, whatever the number might be, but I made five grand and I got my money back. So I'm not happy. 
So we try to blend a healthy IRR. In our case, it's 16 to 18%. And we quote a range because we don't know what it's going to be. It could be 14, it could be 25. Uh, we're relying again on assumptions that are years down the road. So we try to blend a healthy IRR with a healthy multiple on invested capital. And by multiple, I mean, how much money did you make over the entire life of the investment as a percentage of what you put into the investment originally? And behind that, how much of that multiple are you realizing during the life of the investment? And how much of that multiple is going to be sort of back in? So for example, a 2X multiple, if we deliver a 2X multiple in five years or six years, people are still going to be happy. But if it's a six-year play, their IRR is going to be incrementally less than it would be if it was in five years. So as you look at deals, I always encourage folks to try to blend all those different viewpoints together to make a sound decision. In terms of returning to actually answering your question on, I think we're talking about capital stacks and deal structures. We see a lot of sponsors out there that are getting away with structures that we think are not aligned with investors. And one of those structures would be a muted upside. So let's say, for example, to return to your 10 pref deal, investors get a 10 pref and they're kicked out for anything above and beyond that. It's great if you can get it done, but that doesn't enable investors to participate in any additional upside if the deal goes better than expected. We found that kind of a more market rate preferred return and split is somewhere between six to 9% on the preferred return side, anywhere from 60, 40 to 80, 20 in favor of investors. For those of us who are getting deals done with a five pref and 50, 50, that's great. But we just think that doesn't quite align your LPs with the risk they're taking to a degree. That's the argument that always happens, right? I mean, who's taking the greater risk? You're risking capital, but I'm risking time and effort and all this other stuff. Yep. But the reality is nobody can do it without the other. And it's about aligning those interests. And, and you are correct. It's sad to see because of why they invested in you, right? We know why they invested in you, Jacob. It's no like and trust, right? We've already established that. Now they've invested in you and you've said this is the best deal structure for them, but it's really more about the best deal structure for you. It's a lot of times because you're buying over your skis, right? I mean, that's a term you'll understand, right? In Denver and skis, oh, yeah. you know that. But what that means is that you're buying something, betting on the upside, right? I'm going to give you a 10% preferred return to distract you from the fact that I'm overpaying for the asset. <laughs> right, right. Oops, there's a 10% return, but you get no upside because there may not be any. And what happens if I can only, only do an 8% pref and we're constantly chasing that deal? I'm not going to sell anytime soon and lose money. So you can be stuck in this deal. Let's quit talking about everybody else. There's plenty of problems out there. How do you create a storage fund that can scale your portfolio? How did you do it so that you're not having to do these kinds of things so that when you do see a good deal come along, you can go, yes, sir, that's what I'll take. I'm going to take down $30 million worth of real estate in one month. As you know, real estate funds or syndications are typically expressed in the, in the amount of equity they're raising versus their gross capitalization. So in our case, our most recent fund is $30 million in equity. We might increase that to 35. We can find a few more deals in Q4 that makes sense. But we raise money programmatically as we acquire properties. So what doesn't happen is we get a bunch of commitments on January 1st for $30 million and we take the entire year to deploy it. We're marketing, developing investor relationships as we go, and people are coming into deals as we make acquisitions. That's one critical piece if you're a fund manager considering doing a fund is timing your capital raising with the timing of your acquisitions. For example, you can't accept $30 million on day one and begin accumulating preferred return when you have no assets under management, right? That, that wouldn't right. work. 
And the day that we balance our capital raising with our acquisitions cadence is probably going to be never. We always have too much money, not enough deals or too many deals, not enough money. It's never perfectly in balance. That's right. But that's what keeps the fire lit on the hair on your head, right? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm staring 40 in the face and uh, perfect eyesight and a full head of hair. So I'm happy. There you go. There <laughs> yeah. you go. I mean, you're trying to balance the deal flow and the equity. And sometimes operators get caught up in the, I got to spend the money and they, they don't do the best deals. But how do you make sure that when you're doing it, you're consistently picking the right location, the right markets, the right time to deploy the capital? You know, how are you pulling all of that together now that you've got this t- almost 18 years of, or 12 years of experience, right? You started this in 15? Well, we started doing self-storage in 15 and we started yeah. investing in real estate full-time in 2006. Right. That's where yeah. I got the 15 from. So I got 15 years of doing that. And from since 2006, where are you finding that you're getting that matrix to come together where you're able to find the right location, the right timing, the right purchase price? How are you drilling down into that? Well, regardless of your asset class, First and foremost, it's got to be good, good nuts and bolts real estate. It's got to be well located. It's got to be in a in a submarket that's got a growing population. Density is important. Income demographics are less important in self storage, but rooftops and density is very important. And then self storage specific criteria, as you know, self storage is very local supply sensitive. So we track supply ratios in the one, three, and five mile trade radius. I think nationally, there's about seven and a half square feet of self storage per capita in the U.S. So if you're getting into markets that are 12 or 15 square feet per capita, you're seeing some oversaturation, you're seeing a decline in rates and increase in occupancies. And likewise, if you're in markets that are maybe five, six or seven square feet per capita, rates are a little bit more buoyant as well as occupancy. So that's one thing we track pretty carefully. It's not a hard and fast rule of thumb. So we can't really say this submarket has 12 square feet per capita. We're not going to do a deal there. Some markets have that. And every facility is at 98% occupancy. So it's a data point, but it's not an end-all, be-all, buy the deal or don't buy the deal. Within the context of our fund, we're sourcing two deal types, really. They're all existing storage deals that are undermanaged, below market rates, above market expenses, sometimes they don't have a website. The two deal types we're targeting, one, we might buy a deal that's at 98% occupancy. And you might wonder, where's the meat on the bone at 98%? Well, in self-storage, if you're too full, you're not a hero. It means your rates are too low. You ideally want to be like high 80s, low 90s in your occupancy because churn is not a bad thing. It's an opportunity to raise rates. So on a full deal that we'll acquire, our year one business plan is bringing below market customers up to market rates, layering some of the ancillary revenue streams that self-storage has into the project, like late fees, one-time administrative fees that customers pay when they move in, customer insurance, which is a big piece of our revenue stream. And the second deal type that we're buying are deals with lower occupancy. Maybe they're at 50 or 55%. And people were often asked, what's the cap rate you're buying these at? And it, like you might guess, it depends on the deal. That's so right. if you're buying a deal at 55% occupancy, our going in cap rate might be three and a half or 4% because the rates are below market right. and they're not managing it well and they're not advertising. So on a deal like that, our year one business plan is kind of obvious. It's occupancy growth. And then once we get to critical mass, we start jockeying with our revenue stream, getting below market customers up to market rates. So those are the really the two deal types we're targeting we like good markets with good demographics. We can find them low supply ratios, but in general, we're focused. It's become kind of a cliche in the last couple of years, but we're focused on more secondary and tertiary markets. We're finding those markets have kind of the best blend of good cash flow to a degree, a lack of institutional competition, at least last year. That's kind of changing this year. And then the opportunity for capital appreciation as well. 
You mentioned something that people don't often talk about with self-storage, and that's ancillary income. As we all know, that's kind of like the frosting on the cake, right? I mean, that's really the extra stuff that you don't figure in a lot of. You mentioned you've got your late fees, you've got your administrative costs. What else are you doing in mini storage that the normal operator doesn't often think about that's kind of a little bit of that extra stuff? Yeah, those are, I mean, the big three are the late fees, which are obvious. If you pay late, you have a fee. Administrative fees are a one-time fee that somebody will pay when they move in. It's like a $25 or $30 charge on top of their prepaid rent. And the, the third one, and there's not a lot of secret sauce to this, but a lot of the mom and pops that we buy from don't implement this. The REITs certainly do, especially extra space, but tenant insurance is a big piece of our top line revenue. And between those three, those make up about 8% of our top line revenue, which is it's a big number. So if you did don't you have say, those- Did you say 8%? Ocho, yep. That is huge. Yeah, it's a, it's a big number. It, it ebbs and flows depending on the quarter, but that's kind of an average. Sure. So on the tenant insurance side, for example, most of us who will rent a car when we travel decline the insurance because we either have it on our credit card or it's on our auto policy, right? And self-storage, believe it or not, if you don't know much about the asset class, the owner of the facility is not responsible for the contents of the customer's units. And that's a standard thing in self-storage. So a lot of operators like us will require them to have some kind of insurance in place. So we'll ask them to provide a copy of their homeowner's insurance. If they don't have that, we'll sell them one of our protection plans to cover five or $10,000 worth of their stuff. So to put a pen to paper, we'll sell the customer a $15 insurance premium that's paid monthly. And our costs on that premium is $2 a month to our carrier. So we're making 13 bucks a month. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you do that on a few thousand units, and you put a cap rate on that, that's a lot of value creation. And then that's a lot of equity dividend increase as well. But the other thing that you got to look at too, Jacob, and I know you do, is you got to look at the multiple. You resold a $2 thing for six times what you paid for it. Anytime you can sell something for six times what you paid for it, that is a good day. That is a it very is. good day. It is. And you're only 6 xing $2. Right. But again, you do that in scale and you put a six cap on it right? On that additional NOI you've created. And that's a lot of value creation. And you know, the other thing I was getting ready to ask before you told me what the insurance cost, I was getting ready to ask you, why wouldn't you just self-insure? And now I understand why for $2, why would you, right? Yeah. I mean, for $2, you're covered in, but you're six times, you're selling it for six times what you've got. That is absolutely incredible. Before we go, before we wrap this up, I want to thank you for your time, but where can we find you if people want to look at what you've got, if they want to get further acquainted with you and your company, where can we find you in the World Wide Web? Yeah, a couple of places. Our company website is vanwestpartners.com, or you can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. And lastly, LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice. Any of those three will work. And that's where we connect. It was on LinkedIn. And I sure appreciate you accepting the invite to be on our show. I really appreciate you being with us today, Jacob. We're going to have to schedule another call just to talk about airplanes because we had to conduct a little business here today on this one. That's right. Shannon, we really enjoyed it. We appreciate it. And fly safe tomorrow morning. Watch that density altitude. I will watch that. So thank you guys for being part of the Real Estate Rundown. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Real Estate Rundown on Podchasers, Spotify, iTunes, wherever else you get your podcast from. So you can get those automatic updates and catch this episode and many others and see the valuable information we give you. Also, if you want to follow us on Instagram, YouTube, leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you guys. So if you guys want to follow Jacob, you heard where to find him at, Jacob Vanderslice, VanderWestPartners.com. They'll also be in the links on the show. Thanks, guys, for joining us on the Real Estate Rundown.
That's a wrap for today's episode of The Real Estate Rundown. Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnett.com. And be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode.